Good morning. This is uh, Nira Zakovich from the UMB Applied Ethics Center. This is our Ethics in Action podcast. And my guest today is Professor Elisa Cosgrove from um, the UMass Boston Psychology Department. And hi, Lisa. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me, Nir. Uh, our pleasure. And uh, uh, Lisa just joined uh, the center as a uh, faculty fellow, so we will be working uh, a lot more together. And uh, um, Lisa uh, has been doing some uh, really cool and interesting work uh, in the last few years on uh, institutional uh, corruption in the pharmaceutical industry, and more specifically in the, content, in the context of uh, psychiatric drugs. So um, Lisa, uh, and uh, I should mention, she uh, is the co-author of a very uh, important, uh, relatively recent book on that, that's called Psychiatry Under the Influence, and it's co-authored with uh, Robert Whitaker. So uh, Lisa, I wanted to uh, ask you uh, if you could tell us a little bit about what you mean by institutional corruption, where you see it playing out in the, um, uh, psychiatric uh, uh, drug industry um, and uh, why that's a helpful framework for thinking about some of the risks involved. Sure. Um, so uh, Larry Lessig, who is one of the developers, you could say, of the conceptual and normative framework of institutional corruption, um, said something along the lines of it, what institutional corruption tries to capture is the bad barrel, not the bad apple. And I think that sums it up pretty well. Uh, I think it also at least uh, points to why conflict of interest in and of itself isn't a robust enough framework and is too individual oriented to really uh, capture and address the problems. In this case, you can apply the framework of institutional corruption to many, many disciplines, organizations, but in terms of my research, in, um, in terms of psychiatry and the mental health field in general. So, so Lisa, maybe um, for some of our uh, listeners who aren't really uh, in the weeds of this, maybe we could uh, clarify uh, what's at stake by starting with uh, an example and um, seeing how um, some of these risks play out. Sure. So actually, um, I became interested in this research completely by accident. <laughs> I was actually doing menstrual cycle research. Mm -hmm. And it was at the time in the early 2000s when uh, the patent on Prozac was about to expire. And Prozac um, is often referred to as uh, the first blockbuster drug. Blockbusters are usually defined as um, generating revenue of $1 billion or more per year. Uh, and so Lilly, who's the manufacturer of fluoxetine hydrochloride, which is Prozac, um, certainly had a vested interest in uh, finding another use for uh, Prozac because what happens when the patent expires is if there can be another indication that is FDA approved, the pharmaceutical company gets three more years of exclusivity, which legally isn't a patent extension, but effectively works as such. Um, so obviously Lilly was motivated uh, for this. Um, one of their strategies was to try to get a fluoxetine approved for premenstrual dysphoric disorder. 
Uh, and I just happened to notice by accident um, because I teach the, the psychopathology class and, and use the DSM year after year. And I happened to notice that some of the committee members who were on the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders Committee for Premenstrual Dysphoric Disorder um, were receiving money from Eli Lilly and um, also playing a role in uh, providing FDA with evidence that PMDD was a, a real valid disorder and distinct from any other disorder. Um, and so I became curious as to whether this was just an anomaly in the DSM or whether uh, there was a more systematic problem where uh, panel members were receiving money from pharmaceutical companies. So um, that's how I got into it and why it matters is, and this gets back to the issue of institutional corruption, it, quid pro quo corruption, when the corruption we typically think about is an exchange, right? This for that. Um, institutional corruption is different in that it's, it's not suggesting that there is uh, explicit wrongdoing on the part of an individual, but rather um, in the case of pharmaceutical companies paying DSM panel members or other researchers, it can create implicit bias. Uh, and so it's a problem because it can create certain habits of thought that are industry friendly, even when the researcher or DSM panel member um, believes that they are uh, completely objective and unbiased. Hmm. So when you are looking into it, you're saying it's not that you found specifically that the DSM panel members uh, were motivated to uh, confirm uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder as real so as to uh, uh, get Lily uh, monies, but that it raises the question or it raises uh, issues of trust or was there some sort of concrete set of connections? No, it, it, it raises the issue of trust. Um, yeah. The philosopher Dennis Thompson, I think put it well when he said these sorts of conflicts create a generic risk in that it, it makes the public um, question the validity and legitimacy of conclusions drawn. Hmm. Hmm. That's, that's really interesting. And as you were looking into it, did you see um, those kind of connections pretty much across the board with other, with some of the other disorders in the DSM and uh, uh, drugs that were being researched? Yes, in fact, um, the financial ties were greater and more extensive for those disorders for which pharmaceutical treatments were the first line intervention. For example, schizophrenia and psychotic disorders, uh, mood disorders, including depression and bipolar disorders. Hmm. Wow. What's the, could you, could you tell us, Lisa, a bit of the, a bit of the history of how something like this comes about? How does it come about that it's the normal science of these things for uh, the people who are deciding whether X is, in a is a disorder to also be so closely related to the company that is going to create a drug to treat the disorder? Well, I think that's, a, that's an excellent but complicated question. Um, in terms of psychiatry um, and 
to some extent the medical field and other medical subdisciplines also, uh, but there's um, a limited amount of funding, right? Limited amount of NIH and IMH funding. Um, and so, for example, if um, someone is on the faculty of a medical school, um, they there are very few tenure track positions, so they have to provide funding for their position. Um, a pharmaceutical company comes knocking at the door and pharmaceutical companies are smart, right? They know, they know what to do. So they, they tap people at prestigious universities um, and then uh, pay them for many things. Research is one of them, but also for speaking um, because pharmaceutical companies are very aware of the fact that one of the ways in which you can uh, change and shape prescription practices is by having uh, prestigious uh, physicians, in this case, psychiatrists, speak to other physicians. So um, I said it's complicated in that uh, you have this uh, sort of perverse incentive structure, right, at, at medical schools where there aren't that many tenure track positions and people have to bring in funding, pharmaceutical companies come knocking. Um, and initially, you know, this was happening frequently in other disciplines. Um, now, thankfully, many medical schools are saying, you know, we don't want faculty to be on the speakers bureaus because we're concerned about um, the uh, teaching, the pedagogy, how the pedagogy would be shaped in medical schools by industry interests. Hmm. So in terms of the industry interest, if I'm understanding you correctly, on the one hand, it's having the experts define the, condi the medical conditions themselves in a way that potentially could benefit industry. But on the other hand, it's also getting the sort of prestige uh, imprimatur. Exactly, exactly. Um, just to give one example in the DSM-5, the latest edition, um, the, again, the, it's a diagnostic manual about mental disorders. It's not a treatment manual. Mm -hmm. um, but in this edition, the latest edition um, for depression, um, there was a very controversial change and that was the elimination of um, the bereavement exclusion. In previous iterations of the DSM, if someone lost a loved one, um, with, and they, three weeks ago, say they lost a loved one, you would not diagnose them with depression because it was recognized that that is a natural, that those symptoms of depression are a natural part of the grieving process. And that was called the bereavement exclusion. In the DSM-5, this exclusion was eliminated. So now if someone lost a loved one, they go in three weeks and see a therapist, you could get diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the, this edition of the DSM, um, there's also a statement that says, and grief related depression can be uh, mitigated uh, through the use of antidepressants. So uh, again, I think those two changes are not the, the in any, should not in any way be seen as the result of a quid pro quo exchange between a pharmaceutical company manufacturing antidepressants and the panel members for depression, but rather the, it, you know, those sorts of industry relationships create these pro-industry habits of thought. Huh. That's interesting. Uh, that's really interesting. So am I, tell me if I'm understanding this correctly, a 
because of these kind of relation, in addition to habits of thought and the potential for um, implicit bias uh, and the potential for uh, harming trust, uh, am I right to say if a condition is not obviously appropriate to treat uh, pharmaceutically, uh, its chances of making it into the DSM decrease uh, because of these kinds of connections. Uh, so for example, grief or even complicated grief, which can be a response to how life works out and doesn't work out, um, would be redefined as uh, uh, depression, major depression, uh, anxiety, something that more naturally gets streamlined into treatment. Uh, is that the direction of the argument? Yes, and the only thing I would add to that is um, what I find very helpful about the framework of institutional corruption um, that goes beyond financial conflicts of interest is it helps us be more aware of the ways in which guild interests um, can have a corrupting effect. So for example, in psychiatry, the guild interest or guild impulse is to understand emotional distress vis-a-vis -vis a biomedical model. Um, and so when you couple the financial conflicts of interest with this guild interest in terms of how one understands human experience, um, I think you have uh, the uh, situation that lends itself to potentially to implicit bias. Ah, and I take it, that's really interesting to uh, put the guild interests uh, in there. I take it that part of what enables this is that we don't have an outstanding social support, social safety net kind of system that can give other kind of uh, answers except psychiatric drugs to life crises. Because for example, you could imagine a different world in which the response to grief would be, yes, this is diagnosable, but the result of the diagnosis is that it makes you eligible, for example, for you know accessions of therapy, or it makes you eligible for several months of a certain kind of supportive leave uh, uh, from work. Um, the fact that we don't really have those, or at least don't have those on a robust and consistent basis, seems to be part of what streamlines all of this to the pharmaceutical solutions and enables the kind of situation that, you, that you're describing. Yes, exactly, and, and well put. I'd also add, though, as a clinical psychologist, that you know my my uh, discipline is not immune to guild interests. Uh, never ask a barber if you need a haircut. Never ask a psychiatrist if you need medication, and never ask a psychologist if you need therapy. Right. Um, so I, I want to be really clear about that because yeah. um, my work has, <clears throat> excuse me, more recently been influenced by. Um, a human rights approach, or I'm trying to incorporate a human rights approach, <clears throat> excuse me, into my work. And by that, I mean, I, I, I think, well, certainly therapy or medication can be a helpful, at least short-term solution. We need to be looking at, as the UN Special Rapporteur put it, the, the burden of obstacles rather than the burden of mental disorders. That is, what are the structural impediments and, uh, 
socio-political issues that we need to address so that people have the opportunity to live uh, a meaningful and joyful life. Yeah, that, <clears throat> so it's a sort of structural approach, but going back to kind of not asking the barber if you need a haircut. I mean, even if you take the structural approach, you just you, you would say, what are the structural impediments to a flourishing life, to uh, being able to enjoy better mental health? You'd still need a professional to define the criteria for mental health. Um, so there's probably no way to completely eliminate guild interests you know, from the picture. Well, I think you're right, <clears throat> but there's a way to provide more balance. For example, if there was greater stakeholder, stakeholder involvement in diagnostic manuals or treatment guidelines, people who uh, identify as having psychosocial disabilities or identify as having lived experience, having their voice at the table, um, I think would help a great deal. Huh. That, so right now in the way that disorders are uh, uh, characterized in the DSM, there's zero input from people who've had lived experience unless it so happens to be that some of the psychiatrists on the panels have had mental health challenges? Yes, to my knowledge, there was no attempt by the American Psychiatric Association to um, bring in people with lived experience. And that's one of the criticisms of the DSM is that it's almost all psychiatrists who are at the table. Um, and the uh, IOM, the uh, Institute of Medicine, uh, came out with recommendations over a decade ago saying, not just in psychiatry, but for all fields of medicine, that there should be, it, any panel should be multidisciplinary so that you don't have, uh, you have people who don't have any skin in the game, right? If you have all psychologists creating a treatment manual, I think they're probably likely to say that therapy is the best thing since sliced bread. But if you have methodologists and other um, disciplines represented as well as stakeholder involvement, then you have the possibility to have a more uh, robust uh, menu of, of yeah. options for people. Huh, that's interesting. And in, in, in a way that seems to be a separate, analytically a separate question from industry entanglement. So, you know, if we're kind of going to a stakeholder view of uh, uh, mental health diagnostics, even if the psychiatrists and uh, uh, the pharmaceutical companies were not mutually benefiting from each other, there would be an argument to have people from with lived. So e even if you had much more of a sort of socialized medicine paradigm, there would be an argument for uh, uh, people with lived experience to uh, uh, be involved in these kind of uh, definitions and decisions. Yes, yes. And I think it's particularly important um, in the field of psychiatry, in the field of mental health, because unlike other <clears throat> medical specialties, uh, there, there are, there's not one validated, accepted biomarker for any of the disorders that are included in the, in the DSM. Mm -hmm. hmm. um, and 
and the drug companies are highly, I'm assuming, highly interested in finding these kind of, either in finding or defining these kind of biomarkers? Yes, my hesitation in, in, a, in a full yes is that um, it, in many ways it works to the pharmaceutical company's advantage um, in terms of psychotropics mm. to have such squishy um, criteria. Mm. That's interesting. Huh. So tell me a little bit about why though I mean, I, I, I get the stakeholders point and that uh, a more uh, and that there's a really um, strong argument for a more uh, for more inclusive participation in um, making these uh, definition calls. Uh, but why is the idea of um, disclosure of conflict of interest not enough? So essentially, why is it um, unsatisfying uh, ultimately for a researcher to, as they do now, disclose on their papers that, you know, they have this and that relationship with the pharmaceutical companies? That's a great question, Nir. And <clears throat> there's been some really interesting research in the field of social psychology that has actually shown um, that disclosure can actually worsen bias, which is really interesting. Um, so that once people disclose, it can engender an other in the, in the recipient, oh, this person's disclosed, they're so trustworthy, I don't have to think critically. That's one hypothesis. Um, but the fact that disclosure may indeed worsen bias tells me at least that it's an insufficient solution. Mm -hmm. um, to put a face on that, uh, I could give uh, various examples of that. That'd be great. Um, so we're currently working on a study right now um, <clears throat> looking at the uh, validity of the data to support long-acting injectables for people diagnosed with schizophrenia. In other words, giving them antipsychotic medication um, through a shot, um, an injectable as opposed to orally. Um, and part of the reason for this is, is to increase medication adherence. Um, so uh, there was an article that came out in a very prestigious uh, journal, Lancet Psychiatry, and it was a systematic review that included a meta-analysis in which the researchers said, uh, you know, on the body of their interpretation, on the body of the evidence that they interpreted, that long-acting injectables um, showed uh, superior outcomes to, uh, as opposed to taking the medication orally. The there were. Um, four authors, one of whom was an employee of the pharmaceutical company that manufactures uh, antipsychotics, um, another and all the other three had ties. Two of them were US based. And so uh, I looked at the ProPublica database, which is a database that you can put in any physician's name and uh, pharmaceutical companies are required to report any payment. Um, and the two US doctors earned over $1.6 million. Um, from pharmaceutical companies, the vast majority of which was uh, uh, from companies making long-acting injectables. And they, two, two of them also had stock options in a new company that, guess what, has a long-acting injectable in the pipeline. So they did disclose, absolutely, they did disclose, but I would say that's not enough to protect against implicit bias. And without getting into the weed, 
too much into the weeds um, from the data that we were able to obtain. That's the other thing, they didn't share their data, which is a big no-no. Um, uh, but from the data we could uh, look at that was in the appendix, um, they did not highlight a number of things. For example, uh, that uh, you had a very, very high number needed to treat, uh, meaning that you'd have to um, treat over 500 patients to see one patient have a real positive effect. So that just, just to give one example of the way in which these researchers did the right thing, they certainly disclosed all their ties. Um, but I would say that that disclosure is a good example of uh, being insufficient to protect against uh, implicit bias. That is looking at a complicated data set and seeing the glass as half full um, in part because of guild interest, but also in part because of the, the creation of pro-industry habits of thought. Yeah, I guess one thing I would say there is that uh, I'm, I'm tempted to suggest that it's explicit bias rather than implicit bias, or at least the sort of person, you know, looking at this from the outside who is uh, neither connected with uh, the academy or connected with um, the pharmaceutical industry would say, well, you know, if I was being paid $1.6 million by people whose drugs, you know, you know, I had to approve or disapprove. That seems like I have a pretty strong, explicit reason to, you know, to uh, uh, be supportive of the findings that they want me to, uh, uh, to find. Uh, by way of analogy, an analogy, by the way, I think in almost any legal system, a uh, judge uh, that would have anything close to this level of perceived conflict of interest uh, would disqualify herself in a heartbeat. Uh, and it's completely intuitive why she would disqualify herself in a heartbeat. So why it's, you know, um, I, I think that I think that's a fair uh, uh, analogy. So I mean, is it really implicit bias? That's a good question. From the research that we do, I, I don't make any judgment on that. Yeah. I, as a person, I would agree with you that um, there's great risk of explicit bias, but um, on the basis of our research, we, we don't. Uh, so let's, let's, let's assume, I mean, in a way, the implicit bias is a more uh, benign uh, uh, assumption towards the biased person, right? At least it's not totally uh, uh, on purpose. But if we assume implicit bias for a moment, what's um, uh, going back to the example, that's this, this fascinating example you just gave about the long, act, long acting, uh, uh, slow release uh, drugs. And uh, if I understood the, the explanation correctly, the rationale was people forget or fail or don't want to take their medication when they have to take it every day. And therefore the results are, but what are the, um, what are the harms that you would see uh, for patients in taking the long acting drugs, which perhaps could have been avoided if the people making the call were completely objective about whether they should take them or not? So I, I worry about coercion. Um, for example, a judge could say, has the authority to say, um, you know, we'll give you parole if you agree to take the injectable. Um, and I think the important question that doesn't get asked when we 
discuss medication adherence is why aren't people taking it? And when you look at um, the antipsychotics, particularly the newer antipsychotics, what's referred to as the second generation, the side effects are, are really difficult to, to manage. Um, uh, weight gain, uh, extreme weight gain up to 30 pounds, uh, diabetes associated with that, uh, cardio increased, great increased risk of cardiovascular disease, uh, what's called granulocytosis, which is a decrease in your white blood cell count, which makes you far more vulnerable to infections, lethargy. So, uh, you know, I think there, there's understandable reasons why people wouldn't want to take the medication. Hmm. But wouldn't the, I mean, wouldn't the pushback from, uh, wouldn't the plausible pushback from industry be that we've kind of uh, uh, made a good faith uh, uh, cost benefit balance between being psychotic and all of those admittedly very difficult side effects and it's still better in the end to uh, be protected from psychosis at the cost of these uh, and that you wouldn't get the protection if you took the drug in intermittently? Or is it the case that we can no longer trust that recommendation because it can't be untangled from financial interests? Well, um, again, that's a good but complicated question. The jury is out as to whether um, treatment um, long-term chronic treatment with antipsychotics leads to better health outcomes um, as opposed to judicious use, short-term treatment, <clears throat> longer-term medication holidays. So we don't have the evidence to be able to say for sure. I see. And, and, and I'm assuming nobody looks for the evidence because it's not lucrative uh, to have the kind of more eclectic uh, uh, approach. Right. Why would a pharmaceutical company want to fund a study like that? Got it. Got it. Yeah. Wow. Um, so um, the, the kind of standard reply, uh, I'm assuming, uh, from pharmaceutical companies would be you know, listen, we uh, manufacture the world's most uh, uh, exciting, revolutionary, and life-changing uh, drugs, and uh, nobody uh, does that, uh, uh, you know, for the love of humanity and on a volunteer uh, basis, and maybe they should, but, you know, uh, as Machiavelli says, we live in the world as it is, uh, and so uh, those incentives are uh, necessary for uh, innovation and for, right? Um, so how does one push back against that or does one? No, that's a, <clears throat> that's a good point. And, um, you know, certainly uh, pharmaceutical companies have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to make profits. So I don't mean to demonize pharmaceutical companies. I would say we need to create a firewall between pharma and medicine, because currently we have what uh, the philosophy of, of science professor Sergio Sismundo refers to as epistemic corruption. We've, we've corrupted the knowledge base in medicine. So again, not to demonize um, pharmaceutical companies, but to say we need to have um, a better firewall so that we can be 
more assured of the trustworthiness of the of the evidence. Um, Lisa, to to uh, connect this to something that's uh, obviously been in the news uh, a lot, could uh, the opioid crisis have been either uh, averted or uh, curtailed had such a firewall uh, been in place? I don't know if it would have been curtailed, but it would have been mitigated to some extent. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. By um, by uh, uh, researchers sort of um, being kept out of the uh, factors that the, the, the wide scale use of uh, opioids or how, how, would it, how would the mitigation have worked under this model? Uh, well, one example would be in terms of marketing. The um, <clears throat> opioids, prescription opioids, were marketed to physicians um, very heavily with, a, with an under, uh, uh, under emphasis on the harm and the potential for addiction. So I think if you had had non-industry funded research, um, you would have all more non-industry funded research, you would have also um, had the harms um, communicated far more effectively than they were. So that's, that's just one example. Mm. Hmm. That's really interesting. You know, I, I'm thinking that part of this, you know, I, I want to hear a little more about this uh, uh, concept of uh, uh, epistemic injustice as it's uh, uh, applied here. But it seems that part of what you need for people to uh, trust therapies is to uh, have authorities that they trust to recommend the therapies. And uh, if those authorities um, are uh, now entangled, um, then you have a you have a recommendation problem, right? You have you don't know who to go to to get. Uh, good advice. And that's especially interesting, for example, in, you know, the current moment when we've kind of reached the tipping point of uh, uh, vaccine hesitancy, right? Um, and people really do need to trust the authorities that uh, uh, recommend them. Again, by analogy, it reminds me of a different context, by the way. So uh, if I'm uh, remembering correctly, uh, the several large newspapers, several of the sort of uh, um, most prestigious newspapers in the United States uh, have used a, a kind of uh, algorithmic system that uh, told them how people feel in response to reading their articles, uh, what kind of feelings the article uh, uh, raises in the readers, and that data can then be used to show to advertisers to say, you know, people are going to stay longer engaged with, you know, a piece about puppies or whatever, because it makes them feel better. It wasn't really puppies, but just for the sake of argument. Uh, and so it's worthwhile for you to, you know, we have targeted advertising strategy for you right here. Uh, and that's brilliant on the one hand, but on the other hand, as a reader, it says, huh, am I reading this piece now because whatever newspaper has decided that it's more profitable for them to write pieces on this issue that engages people for longer so that they can advertise for more money? 
or am I reading this because this is the news? So that's a sort of epistemic, if I'm understanding it correctly, justice question. Right, right. And in medicine, you have really high stakes, right? Right, a lot more. Yeah. 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 Um, so are there, are there any other aspects of this epistemic justice thesis? So, so the main argument is that the kind of knowledge creators have to stay separately from industry in order for there to be scientific trust in industry? I believe so. I think, oh. you know, implicit uh, bias is uh, part of the human condition and, and we all, I think, ha are vulnerable to be being blissfully ignorant of the way in which, um, you know, we can be biased. And so for the for a public health good, we need that firewall. In fact, the Cochrane Group, which is the leading organization, international organization in the world that assesses scientific evidence and they take no industry funding, multidisciplinary, et cetera, um, they, they have found that um, uh, much bias escapes what's referred to as risk of bias assessments. So uh, a risk of bias assessment would look at is a randomized was the randomized clinical trial, was it, uh, was, was the blinding effective? Because you want to make sure that neither the researcher nor participant knows what uh, intervention arm they're in. So there's, there are these different assessments of potential bias. Um, but what they found is industry funding escapes much of that. I'll give an example. Um, what, uh, in a brilliant study that some researchers did, they looked at um, the results section, but then looked at the conclusions. And what they found is that um, industry-funded researchers accurately um, included information in the methodology section and in the results, but in the conclusions, they greatly overstated uh, benefit and underreporting of harms. Um, now you could say, well, it's in the paper, but we all know that busy physicians are not always reading the entire paper and they go to the conclusion. Um, so that's uh, an example of epistemic corruption. And I, I would say the pharmaceutical companies have become very savvy at being able to figure out how they can um, infiltrate uh, the medical uh, world. Just real briefly, another example is through medical education. Um, pharmaceutical companies uh, have paid historically for the vast majority of um, continuing medical education. So every licensed clinician, in this case physicians, have to stay up to date to renew their license. And so they're required to take a certain number of, of courses um, post-licensure. Um, and in my field, in psychology, we pay for this. In medicine, um, historically, the pharmaceutical companies would pay for it. Um, but uh, you, you have to worry about the accuracy and balance of the information that's being received. Right, 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 right. So in that vein, what are, um, what are some of the either pragmatic or uh, longer term policy solutions that um, can be applied to this problem? 
Another good question. Um, well, I think uh, I'll say one thing idealistically, <laughs> ridiculously optimistic, but I would say we need to have more funding. We need to have more government funding for these drug trials. Um, just you know, relying so heavily on pharmaceutical funding is a corrupting influence. Secondly, um, looking at the FDA and other regulatory bodies like the um, European Medicines Association, um, I can't speak to that. I don't have as much knowledge, but in terms of the FDA, um, we need to uh, fund that better. Currently, what happens is that um, in the present system, somebody with a, a commercial tie can uh, can develop a waiver and, and submit it and then provide testimony. Also, a current practice is that somebody from the FDA can then go right into a job at Big Pharma um, without waiting three, four or five years. So if you have this revolving door, um, I think it again, creates this uh, situation in which there can be implicit bias towards the pharmaceutical companies. So those, those would be uh, two examples. A third one would be um, that I think would be relatively doable would be to use some of the fines that have been levied at the pharmaceutical companies. And those fines are in the billions of dollars. Take some of that money and use it to fund um, non-pharmaceutical research. Hmm. Well, what kind of non-pharmaceutical research? Well, you could fund psychosocial interventions. For example, there was a very small, but I thought very important study um, by a group of researchers at Yale where they gave uh, money. That was the only intervention. They gave money, not a lot, but a, a, a small amount of money to people diagnosed with schizophrenia and psychotic disorders to just see if it in any way improved outcomes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it did. And one of the uh, things that people described were things like, well, I was able to go to my, my brother's uh, birthday party because I could afford to buy him a gift. Mm -hmm. um, I was able to you know, spend more time with friends because I could pay for my own movie ticket. Huh. Huh. That's, that's fascinating. As you were speaking earlier, I was also thinking you could have some potentially well-placed, very modest interventions that could make a difference and also could make a statement like, for example, requiring as an industry standard or as an academic standard to uh, put the harms in the conclusion, to slightly shuffle around you know, the structure of articles. I mean, probably raises academic freedom uh, uh, questions, but that's, you know, I guess that's debatable in those uh, in that context. Also, you know, a kind of limited intervention would be, which I'm sure happens in plenty of uh, uh, countries, not to allow pharmaceutical co uh, companies to uh, fund continuing education. Um, those are sort of much smaller tactical uh, uh, interventions. You know, it's interesting, again, by analogy. Uh, so for example, some of the large tech companies have uh, caught on to the dwindling of uh, public trust uh, in them a while ago uh, and are trying to get out in front of it. Facebook, for example, with uh, its uh, famous uh, uh, Facebook appeals board and so on and so forth. You know, whether it's lip service or not, I think is a good question. Uh, is any of this uh, dawning on the pharmaceutical industry that, uh, or, or do they feel too uh, insulated because of their strong lobbying? 
I think, uh, you know, they do a good job in terms of positioning themselves and marketing themselves as uh, a public good. Um, and that's understandable. And in many ways, you know, they have provided public goods. And, and I also, I, I wanna be clear, you know, because I talk so critically about um, uh, psychiatry and, and uh, the psychotropic medications that I'm not in any way anti-psychiatry or anti-medication. Um, the, the way I see the work that we do is, is really about informed consent. It's really about trying to uh, develop solutions so that we can uh, have more trust in the evidence base in, me in medicine and so that people can make uh, decisions that um, where they're fully informed. For uh, Just to give a real quick example of fully informed. So there was a big study years ago about psychostimulants in kids diagnosed with ADHD. And uh, they found definitely that um, outcomes were improved for kids. Uh, they looked at a number of different outcome measures and parent outcome measures and teacher outcome measures, absolutely. What they found though is interesting, it's one of the few longer term studies. Um, and uh, however, after three years, the uh, outcomes were worse and there was, um, the kids that were on it were uh, significantly uh, uh, less weight and shorter. Um, mm -hmm. And they also had higher delinquency scores. So if I was a parent considering medication for my child, I would want to know, wow, these drugs are very effective in the short term. But you know what? If they're used chronically over the long term, there's a good chance that the outcomes might not be so good. Um, that result was in the paper, but it was buried. And what was marketed by the pharmaceutical companies was, you know, how effective the psychostimulants were for ADHD. Hmm. Wow. And if a physician is too busy uh, to find that, I imagine the chances of a parent, you know, if they're gonna look that kind of thing up in the first place, which is rare, uh, what are their chances of they doing their own independent research? And so their uh, default is to trust the physician um, who <laughs> hasn't looked at it. Yeah, well, this is fascinating. Uh, so Lisa, I think we're uh, uh, running out of time, but I wanted to thank you for uh, talking uh, to me about this. This is a super interesting and important topic and sounds like becoming more and more interesting and important. Uh, and I really look forward to continuing this uh, discussion with you. Thank you, Nir. It was my pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to working with, with you and your colleagues. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.